expression of Jesus' thoughts and desires, his, his deepest part of him, comes out in these words as he lines up his desires with the Father's. And so it is an encouraging and an inexhaustible example for us. I don't think I have to sell you on the desire to study it, but I'm trying to. As you think about this prayer, you should long to learn from our Lord. Prayer in and of itself is one of the most wonderful and difficult disciplines of the Christian life, is it not? It's one of the most wonderful experiences of your relationship with God through His Son, but it's one of the most difficult realities for us to continue fervent in prayer. It's easy to overcomplicate prayer, to to make prayer a lot of things that it was never intended to be, and and then to lose our zeal in it because we've made it that. It's also very easy to oversimplify prayer, to, to approach our Father as though we are some ragamuffin kid just bounding into the throne room of the eternal God. It's easy to overcomplicate and oversimplify. It's also easy to neglect prayer and to feel as though you never pray enough. I am sure to a Christian in the room, if I asked you, do you pray enough, you all would say no. If I asked you, do you need to grow in prayer, you would say yes. Do you need to grow in motivation to pray, you would say yes. Especially as you consider the sovereignty of God as it relates to your prayer life, it is especially easy as those committed to the Scriptures seeing the sovereignty of God on every page, to wonder why even pray? Why take my puny little concern to this sovereign ruler over all and and petition him to, to do something different than what's currently being done? To ask him in some way to shed more mercy when when he's sovereign anyways. Isn't he going to do his will his way according to his timetable? Why pray? What good does praying about it do? It's easy also to get distracted in praying. So it's easy to lack fervency in prayer. It's also easy to get distracted in praying. To pray for the wrong reasons and for the wrong things. To be pushed into prayer for something entirely temporal and probably meaningless in the broader scheme of eternity. Or to be moved along by some internal lust and and desire that's mashed with sinfulness all over. It's easy to get distracted in praying. And I think our Lord knew that about us, don't you? Don't you think our Lord knew that we would be prone to all of that when he came to this prayer in John 17? Don't you think the Holy Spirit and all of his wisdom knew that we as the church for 2,000 years would, would wrestle in our practice of prayer, wrestle in our motivation to get on our face before the Lord and beg of him for more mercy? Don't you think he knew we would wrestle with those things? Don't you think in his divine knowledge and his eternal wisdom, he recorded these words for us out of the mouth of our Savior? That there's nothing to quibble with here. There's nothing to say, well, he was just a man praying. No, this is the eternal son. Truly man, but truly God. If ever there was a prayer prayed for us to model, it is this one. To follow in the footsteps of our Lord, petitioning the Father as sons and daughters of the King. It is the ultimate example of prayer in all of Scripture. As I mentioned last time, the prayer itself moves in three basic 
parts. Verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself as he approaches the cross. Verses 6 through 19, he prays for his immediate disciples, these 11 men who will become, along with Thaddeus and later Paul, the apostles of the church. And then beyond them, in verses 20 to 26, he prays for those who would believe in him through the testimony of the apostles. Namely, he prays for the church. He prays for you. He prays for me. Last time we considered that first part where Jesus prays for himself. This morning and next Sunday, Lord willing, we will consider that middle section where he prays for his 11 apostles. And really, there's, there's so much to pull apart and understand here. We could really spend the rest of 23, and I'm not joking, we could spend the rest of 23 in, of 2023, in these 6 through 19 verses. We won't, I think it's going to be most helpful to, over the next couple of weeks, consider these two questions as we think about the prayer life of Jesus. Those questions relating to each one of us is why should we pray and what should we pray for? Why should we pray and what should we pray for? We see this modeled in our Lord so carefully and so preeminently in John 17. Those two questions are really fundamental to the discipline of praying. There's other questions to answer, right? Like, what's the nature of prayer? You need to understand what it is that you're doing when you pray. We could talk about the the familial relationship and the expression of faith that's involved when you pray. We could talk about what what kind of things you should be asking about or how much you should pray or, or when you should pray. Those are questions that relate to prayer that are important. But the questions that Jesus models for us in answering are these two questions. Why should you pray? And what should you pray for? John 17, I'm going to read verses 1 through 19 so we don't lose the context. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours." All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you that these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. 
I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. As we study this text this morning, I wonder how is it with your soul? A good barometer of how it is with your soul is how is it with your prayer life? What's your practice and pattern in seeking more mercy from the Lord and bringing prayers of thanksgiving and praise and adoration to your God? If you were happening to be discipling another younger believer right now, and you're trying to express to them how it is and what it is and when it is that you should pray, would you be willing to open up your life to them and to show them how it is that you pray, when it is that you pray, for what it is that you pray, and why you pray? Is your life a good model to follow as a follower of our Lord? Maybe you say this morning, actually, my prayer life is better than it has ever been. Praise God for that testimony. If that is true of you, it is a work of his grace. Rejoice with him in that. It is his work in you. Or maybe you say, you know, I've really hit a slump and I'm in serious need of growth here and serious improvement. Wherever you are on that spectrum, we all need growth in our prayer lives. And so we learn from our Lord this morning why we should pray. That's where he starts in verses 6 through 10. He petitions the Father on behalf of his disciples. And as he does that, before he ever makes a request, he gives the foundation for his praying. It's similar, and this is a little less sacred than it ought to be, but it's similar to a young man who's met an amazing Christian girl on the college campus and just is astounded at God's kindness to bring their paths together and is just excited that maybe this is the girl I'm going to marry. And as he prays for that girl, he doesn't just go right to petition, like, Lord, convince her that I'm the one she should marry. He doesn't go there. First, he goes and says, Lord, thank you for being so kind to bring this girl across my path. Thank you for your, your work in her life to, to bring her into Christ and to mature her in Christ. And, you know, Lord, whatever happens, thank you. He starts there. That's where our Lord, in a similar way, starts with these disciples. As he brings them to the Lord, he's just rejoicing and is thankful to the Father for who they are, for the relationship they have to the Son and to the Father through the Son. As we see him pray about them, we learn why we should pray. We learn, first of all, that we should pray because we belong to God. We should pray because we belong to God. That's where Jesus starts in verses 6 through 10. He's so full of joy and love for these men that he rehearses the nature of their relationship. He says in verse 6, I've come into the world to manifest your name, Father, to these men. We know all the way back from the prologue in John 1 that that's why Jesus came into the world. It was to make the Father known and to redeem sinful mankind, to exegete the Father. And remember that this was Jesus coming in the flesh to a a generation of Jews who were scared to even say the the covenant name of God, Yahweh. They, They replaced that in their readings with Adonai, Lord, the, the generic term for God. They wouldn't even associate themselves personally, even though they were God's covenant people, with their God who had revealed himself by that name, Yahweh God. 
And now here comes one on the scene, a prophet from Nazareth, one who's doing supernatural works and teaching with authority. And you remember back in John 8, he associates himself with Yahweh God. Not only does he say the name, but he says, I am. Before Abraham was essentially Yahweh. I am. Ego eimi. Associating himself explicitly in that moment with the God whose name they would not even say. They were scandalized by this. They, they charged him with, with heresy and blasphemy, and they picked up stones to stone him and to rid him from this earth. As they sought his execution, they made sure he would die one day. Remember all the way back in chapter 5, the, the text says, John kind of gives us some insight into what's happening in chapter 5, the tension there. He says in verse 18 that this was why they were seeking to kill Jesus, because not only was he breaking their Sabbath code, but he also was calling God his Father, making himself equal with God. You see what the prologue said, John 1, verse 12, Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. That's where we're at at the end of the book. He came to his own. He made known his Father to his people. He manifested God in all his glorious attributes and perfections. He made known the truth of God in all its depth and all of the clarity of the Son of God. He came as the Word of God, making known all the truth of God, and they rejected it at every turn. So much so that they sought his death on a Roman execution stake. As vile as vile could be, they had to set up kangaroo courts polish off the gavel of injustice and declare him guilty of crimes he never committed so that the sinless son of God could die for sinners like you and me. You see, he came to his own and his own did not receive him and they're moments away in John 17 from that plant coming into full bloom, the plant of their rejection. And here Jesus is in front of these 11 men. And these men, had believed. These men had received his word. These men had accepted him as truth and life and the way. Do you remember in chapter 6, after he fed the 5,000 and he continued to talk and he explained to them that you don't need bread and fish, you need the sustaining bread of life. I am the bread of life. And as they wrestled with that truth, they started to to reject what he was saying because it was too hard for them. And the crowd started to, to wither away and, and just kind of go off in their own directions. And pretty soon it was so obvious, Jesus turned to his 11, or his 12 at that time, and said, are you guys leaving too? You remember what Peter said in response for all of them? Lord, to whom are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. So Jesus describes them here in this text, verse 6. They have kept the Father's word. They have kept the Father's word. Praise God, it is raining. <laughs> I was going to pray for rain this morning, I forgot. So thankfully it doesn't depend on my praying for rain, right? Thank you, Lord. They have kept the Father's word. It does not mean that they have kept and obeyed every command of the word of Christ. In John 15, Jesus told them, abide in me and I in you and you'll produce much fruit. And then he goes on to say, abiding in me looks like keeping my words. 
And what he means is his, his intricate commands, how he calls his disciples to follow him. Well, these guys, these 11 guys in the upper room have not kept every word of the Lord, correct? And they will not from here on out. In fact, they're going to be fearfully hiding from the Jews in the upper room in just a couple of days after Jesus dies. They, they had a hard time even believing Jesus' prophecy of his own resurrection. That's how weak their faith is in the upper room. But they had faith. They believed our Lord. They accepted it as true, and Jesus delights in that reality. Verse 7, they now know that everything Jesus has, has done and has said has been given by the Father. Every supernatural act, every word of truth, every word of wisdom, every display of compassion, everything in Jesus is confirmation that he was sent from the Father, and these men now know that, Jesus says in verse 7. Verse 8, a succinct description of a true Christian. They've received the words of the Son. They've taken his words as truth. They've staked their eternity on all that Jesus has said about himself. Namely, that he has come from heaven on mission to save their soul. In other words, they believe he was truly divine, the Son of God and the Son of Man. And that he was one with the Father and that he had come to make the Father known. They've also believed in Jesus' mission to redeem mankind from sin. They've seen their own sin. They've seen their need for a Savior. They believe that Jesus is that heaven-sent Savior. This is their side of the equation in salvation. They've been confronted with the reality of their need and the Savior in front of them, and they have believed. This is an amazing description of these men. In just a matter of minutes, they're going to all abandon Jesus when the, the mob of soldiers, soldiers shows up with Judas. They're going to scatter out of fear for their own lives. And that in itself will be an act of protection by our Lord. In, in just a matter of hours, Peter, who had just professed in chapter 13, Lord, I, I will never leave you. I will die with you if I have to. In just a matter of hours, he's going to say, I don't know that man. No, really, I do not know that man. No, expletive, I do not know that man. Cursing himself, I do not know that man. This is the, the character of these men in this moment, and yet Jesus describes them as men who have believed in Jesus and have known that he is from the Father and have believed in his mission. You see, he's rejoicing, Jesus is rejoicing in his relationship to them and in their true belief in him. He says in verse 9 that this is why he is praying for them. He's praying for them because they are the fathers. Notice that this is the ground then for their faith. The section is bookended with that truth. Verse 6 and then again verses 9 and 10 communicate this glorious truth that these men were given to the Son out of the world. They are the fathers and he gave them to the son and all that the father has, the son also has, he says, and all that the son has, the, the father has. This is the glorious truth of God's sovereign election. When the rest of the world is, is continuing on in unbelief, the world around these 11 men, continuing on in unbelief, these 11 men are believing, receiving the words and continuing with the Lord. Why? Jesus says, it's because you are the men who have been given to me by the Father. He says that in verse 6, 
says it again in verse 9, I'm praying for these men, not for the whole world, but for these whom you, Father, have given to me. Why? For they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. This is similar to what Paul says in Ephesians 1, verse 3. He explodes at the beginning of his letter with the explosion of praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Jesus, in this upper room, rejoices in these 11 men and in their faith, and he knows that their faith is rooted in God's sovereign choosing of them, bringing them to faith in the Lord Jesus himself. He knows they are his because they are the Father's. And now he's going to deliver them back to the Father in prayer as he gives his life for them. We'll see in a few weeks that it's not just these men that are our Lord's, but it's all who will believe in him through their witness All those who have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world are Christ and are uniquely the fathers. And these are on Jesus' mind just minutes before he goes to the cross of Calvary. Notice that his prayer for them is not driven along by circumstances or by experience or by the pressing moment, but by theological truth. They are the fathers and therefore they are are the sons, he says, which, by the way, is an astounding statement of Jesus' deity in verse 10. No other man can say what Jesus says in verse 10. Now, we all can say, all that is mine is yours, because that's true. Everything you have is actually the Lord's. It's just entrusted to you for the time being as a steward. None of us can say without blaspheming God, all yours is mine. Only God himself can say that. I had another wonderful experience with what I believe to be a Jehovah's Witness calling me this last week. He, he calls every now and then to the church and tries to pinpoint me on our doctrinal statement. And I've had this conversation with him so many times that I, I try to get off the phone as quickly as possible because it is just an argument. I, he won't even let me talk. He just yells at me essentially on the phone. But he started in John 17, 3. I was like, well, that's ironic. I just have studied a lot of that trying to show me how Jesus is not God from that text, that only the Father is the true God and Jesus Christ is the one he sent. Like, well, yeah, if that's the only verse we know about the relationship between Father and Son, then I guess you're right. But, you know, just seven verses down in verse 10, Jesus makes a statement that if he is not God, he is blasphemous and deserves eternal hell. Right? You cannot say all yours is mine unless you are God yourself. Jesus, the Son, declares to the Father, I am praying to you about these because they are yours and they are mine. He does not pray for the world around them. He's compelled to pray for these who are his. This then is instructed to our prayer life, isn't it? So if we are in Christ by grace through faith as a work of God's sovereign kindness upon our soul, If you are in Christ this morning, then this is fuel for your prayer. 
You, you should be compelled to pray because you belong to God. He owns you. He's your master, you his slave. He's your father, you his son or daughter. He's your Lord, you his subject. He's your compassionate caregiver, you the, the merciful, needy servant of all. So prayer is, in its most basic reality, an expression of this relationship. Prayer is like an infant's cry for parents' attention. It's an innate response to the realities of life in a sin-cursed world, crying out to the one who gave us life and saying to that one, I need help. Or thank you for your help. Or thank you for this life. It's a reflex of faith as we relate to our Father who is in heaven. And prayer then is carried along throughout life because we're convinced that we are God's. And the more convinced you are of that relationship, the more your prayer life will thrive. Even if our faith is in its smallest form at the moment, like that of a mustard seed, where it's barely alive, shriveling to its smallest point, we are convinced, even in those hardest of moments, that we are God's. And that though our faith in God is minimized, His love for us and His power over us and His sovereignty over all things is in no way minimized by our small faith. And so we are compelled to pray, to cry out to the one who made us through His own mercy and grace. We're convinced that He who began this good work in us will completed on the day of Christ. And that doesn't mean he's going to leave us alone until that final day and then voila, we're all perfect and complete. It means he's going to tirelessly and relentlessly pursue your growth in his son day after day, moment after moment, working all things together for your good, namely your conformity to his son. So that you, having been justified, will now be sanctified ultimately it is coming to be glorified. When everyone else fails, when everything else falls apart, when hope is lost, when the day, way is dark, when the day is done, we are still convinced of this glorious truth. We belong to God, and therefore we pray. Jesus models another reason why we should pray, and that is because we are in the world. That's in verses 11 to 16. He says that he is no longer in the world. You notice how he it's like a settled reality. He hasn't yet ascended. But he came into this world on mission so determined to accomplish it that it's like it's as good as done. And in his final moments of life before the cross, he talks as though he has already gone. And he says, I am no longer in this world, but these that God has chosen out of the world are still going to be in the world. And Jesus has talked a lot about that in the upper room, hasn't he? We have talked a lot about that over the last several months. And Jesus has said, I'm leaving, you're staying. But don't be frightened. I will not leave you orphaned. I will send my spirit to you. And he will, in his work in your life, guide you and protect you and teach you all things. He's told them again and again through his promises in the upper room. And yet he knows that he's still no longer going to be present to protect and preserve these men. And he's very aware that when he was present, he took the best shots of the enemy. Right? 
So as he calls this little band unto himself and they're following him, Satan was not after the little band necessarily. They're after, he was after Jesus. And Jesus took one shot after another from Satan and his minions throughout his ministry. And Jesus knows after his departure, his followers are in a unique spot of danger. Notice in verse 14, he says that that danger is spurred along by our very nature. What's our nature? Well, that we are no longer of the world, but that we are in Christ. How is it that we are in Christ? He says, I've given my words to them. So because you've received the words of Christ as followers of Christ, you're taken out of the world and now are in Christ, but you still exist in the world. But you're not any longer of the world. And so this presents a unique danger to you to be in the world, but not of the world. It puts a target on your back. It makes you public enemy number one in the absence of our physical Savior and Lord Jesus. The world under the dominion of the God of this world, Satan himself, hates those who love truth. It hates those who are different than themselves. It, the world wants us all to, to be uh, on the same level, all conforming to its views and its ways and its version of the truth at its current expression. And the Christian fundamentally, from day one of believing the gospel, stands up and says, no, actually there's a different truth. And that different truth is Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. And my life is tied inextricably to him, and that never changes. For Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, no matter the cultural winds and tides of, of the present hour. And that puts you immediately in conflict with the world around you. And Jesus knows that, and so because he knows that, there's a fundamental opposition to his people. He prays for them. He prays for them. He prays that the Father will not take them out of the world but that he will keep them from the evil one. This God of the world's system, the one who's prowling around like a hungry, roaring lion, sneaking behind bush and hedge and tree, waiting for you, unsuspecting, to walk into his snare and his trap so as to devour you because he hates you. Why does he hate you? Because you are no longer of the world, but of Christ. And so because we are left here in the world, Jesus says this is a galvanizing reality for prayer. This should be the, the spark that lights your forest fire of prayer. To know that you are left in the world. It's just a, a few seconds of thinking on the reality that you are here absent of the physical presence of Christ to protect you, to make your soul fly quickly to the throne room of the Almighty and to ask him for protection and strength for the battle. As you know, in your own experience, one of the enemy's favorite tactics, and he's good at it, in this spiritual warfare is to, to lull us into a sleepy, apathetic carelessness. He slowly numbs our, our spiritual awareness with what appears to be a ceasefire. And while there's no flaming arrows flying past our heads, he sneaks behind enemy lines and into our camp and into our very lives. And he gains entrance into our thoughts and our hearts 
And he seeks to lure us away, subtly deceiving us so that he can destroy us. The scripture is not silent about this. Christ did not forget to tell us about this danger. He's been very clear that this is the the risk to your soul. And he says, when you consider the nature of the battle and the deceptive and destructive power of the serpent of the Garden of Eden, you can't help but pray. You can't help but run to the God who can save you and rescue you from his snare. You simply are not strong enough. You're not smart enough. You're not wise enough. You're not discerning enough to avoid the devil's traps. Notice that Jesus does not depend upon the disciples' ability to outsmart the devil. He does not rejoice that that these men are are so fine-tuned in their spiritual lives that that they'll be fine and they'll be used of God to plant the church because they're so spiritually mature and unable to be attacked by the devil. No, he knows that Satan has asked to sift Peter's soul. And the only thing standing between Satan taking Peter and destroying him And God is Jesus saying, no, you're not going to have him. And praying for Peter. So too he does for you and for me. So must also we pray because we are in this world. We also should pray because we're preserved by God, verse 12. Because we're preserved by God. We see that in verse 12 where Jesus rehearses how he has kept them and guarded them, he says. It's two different words in the original The first has the idea of preserving and and protecting by watching over them, keeping them in line, making sure they don't go too far or wander away, restraining them from error and and guarding them from deception, from their own folly. The second word, guarded, means that he kept them from the attacks and, and the actions and the dangers of the enemies outside themselves, namely that of the evil one himself. Jesus says, I have not lost one of them except for the one that was prophesied in Old Testament scripture who would be lost, who would enter into my inner circle and betray me from within and behind enemy lines. That one was lost so as to fulfill scripture, but none others, Jesus says, have I lost. What's he saying here? He's saying, I have watched over and guarded and guided all 11 of these men, and I am now delivering them safely to my Father." They've been entrusted to me, and I'm now giving them to his care. For when he himself is absent from this world, his preservation of the disciples spurs him along to pray for their ongoing preservation. And there is here a lesson for us. How many fatal errors has the Lord protected us from? How many dangerous heresies have we given a moment's notice to and started to look into and think about and Our Lord, by His Spirit, has diverted our eyes and kept us on the straight and narrow. How many fleeting pleasures of sin have beckoned us with their siren calls to heed their offerings and to give in to our basest, most sinful desires? How many times have we stumbled into sin with careless spiritual sloth and been caught in a sin, unable to get ourselves out? How many times have we been the sheep who started to wander from the flock demanded in that moment the shepherd coming with his rod to discipline us back into line. How many dangers, both physical and especially spiritual, has the Lord protected us from? And that answer, that question has an an unanswerable reality. The answer is, we have no idea. 
It's an incalculable math problem. Only eternity will reveal the billions of acts of God's sovereign care over your soul. One of the things you will do in the new heaven and the new earth, I am convinced, is look back on your life and see all the ways that God delivered your soul safely into eternity. Keeping you and guiding you and protecting you. Picking you back up, dusting you off, sanctifying you by the blood of his son and moving you along to the next work of grace. So this should compel us, beloved, to turn from our own strength. For that is what prayerlessness has as its fundamental nature, a reliance on you. Prayerfulness is a gripping reality that I need help outside of me. And when you realize that you have been preserved by Christ thus far, how much more should you then turn to this Christ who has preserved you and plead with him to carry you safely home? providing his protection and his loving care. So constantly rejoice in his work in this way and constantly lean on his work in your life. Do not lean on your own understanding, but trust in the Lord, knowing he will deliver you home. That trust is going to look then like frequent, fervent, faith-filled prayer. Lastly, we should pray because we are on assignment we are on assignment. I'll have a lot more to say about this next week when we cover these verses in more detail, but see this in verses 17 to 19. Jesus says, I'm leaving, but you're staying. You're going to face unending opposition. You're no longer of this world, but you're mine now, given my word. And so in these three verses, Jesus prays that they would be sanctified in the truth. And, and what is truth? Well, that sanctifying truth is the word of God. So his prayer for them in this moment is that they be sanctified, directly linked with the word of God, directly linked in verse 18 with the mission they've been given. So sanctify them in the truth, verse 17, your word is truth. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So the sanctifying work precedes the commission to go and do his work. And then verse 18, he becomes the model of this very reality. He says, as, uh, or excuse me, verse 19, and for their sake I consecrate myself, same word for sanctify in verse 17. I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. So Jesus becomes the model for this sanctifying work for service to the Lord. So this sanctification Jesus is praying for and has himself experienced is to be set aside for service. It's a purifying work in which the instrument is cleansed and prepared and set aside for a task. When our family gets ready for small groups, when we host small groups, we do some cleaning in our house usually. As we do that, there's some cleaning we do that is, is entirely for looks, like dusting. This is entirely for, for looks. It's just so that you don't walk in my house and go, man, these people are pigs. There's other cleaning we do that is entirely utilitarian. We clean the dishes we used the last time so that we can use them again. That is the, the cleansing being prayed for here by Jesus. Don't dust them off so that they look nice, so that they can sit on the shelf as a, as a trophy of God's amazing kindness. That certainly is true, but there's more here. This is a sanctifying reality by the Spirit through His Word 
for service. So that you will be active in pursuing usefulness to the Lord. It was symbolized so well and so frequently under the old covenant system of the Mosaic law, right? Just think back to the the book of Leviticus and all of its rules for the sons of Aaron. All the ways they were to cleanse themselves so that they could be useful in the temple worship. The prophets, to skip ahead a little bit in in Israelite history, think of of the likes of Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and Malachi and how they were set apart, Elijah and Elisha, set apart by God for a specific time, for a specific purpose. And they, they all looked a little different. They all acted a little different. They all functioned in ways in accord with God's command, unique to them as prophets, so that they could fulfill their role to be God's mouthpiece in that generation for that time. They were sanctified for service. The ultimate example of this is obviously then our own Lord Jesus. Set apart by the Father from before the foundation of the world to be the sacrificial lamb without blemish or spot, holy, so that he might fully atone for our sins. Not set apart so that we can all look at him and see his amazing holiness, which indeed we should but set apart for a unique task, given a unique office as the heavenly prophet to come and preach the good news of the gospel, set apart as the the high priest of our faith to come and make the sacrifice of himself, the sinless sacrificial lamb of God, so as to secure our redemption and the forgiveness of our sins so that we too can be cleansed and forgiven in him. And now Jesus says, I'm leaving the world and I'm leaving you. And just like I was sent into the world, so send I you into the world. He'll say that again in chapter 21. And so he says, like me, you are to be sanctified, set apart as useful to the Lord, sent into the world with his message. And because that's true, it causes our Lord to pray for them, that they would be sanctified so that they might be useful It's not just a prayer for their holiness so that they'd stop being sinful. It's a prayer for their holiness so that they would be servants. This is how Paul talks to Timothy in his second letter to him. He says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy. That's our idea. Useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. This is God's work in you to make you holy by his word. Not just so that you no longer sin. That's important. But so that you serve. And those are directly connected. The less you sin, the more effective you are to serve. The more you sin, the less holy you are, the less effective you are in your service. So for some of you this morning, you are not serving much because you're caught in sin. And sin is making you miss out on the very things God has appointed for you to do before the foundation of the world. It's not about earning his grace or making yourself appealing to him so that he would love you. It's because he has loved you that you now want to be sanctified and useful for him. Because that's true, Jesus prays for the purity of of these disciples he's going to leave behind on assignment. So too for us, we should pray that we 
would be sanctified so that we can serve. D.A. Carson, as he explains in his commentary, this idea that we remain in the world, but we're no longer of the world, and we're on assignment in the world. He identifies two of our most common weaknesses or temptations. And that's to compromise with the world, to give in, to start looking more and more like them, or to completely disengage from the world, the holy huddle idea. He says this, the Christian's task then is not to be withdrawn from the world, nor to be confused with the world, but to remain in the world, maintaining witness to the truth by the help of the paraclete, and absorbing all the malice that the world can muster, finally protected by the Father himself in response to the prayer of Jesus. The followers of Jesus are permitted neither the luxury of compromise with a world that is intrinsically evil and under the devil's power, nor the safety of disengagement. Beloved, you are not permitted the comfortable luxury of compromise nor the safety of disengagement. Christ came into the world to save sinners like you and me so that we would be set on mission to do the works he has called us to do. Turn quickly with me to Titus chapter 2 and we'll end here. Titus chapter 2. Right before the book of Hebrews, Titus chapter 2 will be here next Sunday evening, but it is so helpful. Titus 2 verse 11, a summation of the gospel and its continuing work in our life. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's sanctification, right? Right there? That's being set apart by the grace that saved us. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we have an eye to the future and our Lord's return, but that doesn't make us disengaged from the world. Verse 14, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You see, the issue in your sanctification is that you'd be freed from sin so that you can serve our Lord with zeal for the good works that have been appointed beforehand for you to do. Because that's true. Like Jesus prayed for us, ought we not also pray? And when you pray against your sin, by the way, that's one of the the most helpful things you can do to fight the sins of your soul. Isn't that what Jesus said in just a few hours to the 11 or especially to the three, Peter, James, and John, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. You can't pray and genuinely sin. You can't genuinely pray and sin at the same time. So temptation to sin loses its power when you humble yourself and go immediately to the throne of grace. But it's not just an issue of you being freed from sin so that you can have a better life and and enjoy it all the more. Indeed, you will but it is so you can be freed from sin so as to serve him. Because the more pure you are, the more useful to our Lord you will be. So as you wake up tomorrow morning and struggle to pray, will you call to mind, will you consider these truths? That we should pray because we belong to God. Because we are still in the world but have thus far been preserved by God 
and have been given an assignment by our Lord. May God provoke us all to pray. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for being our Lord and our King, owning us by your grace and your mercy. Would you help us to be sanctified in the truth, set apart and useful for your use. Father, we pray that you especially would compel us to pray to these ends. Thank you for our Lord's example. Thank you for recording and preserving these words for us. Would you make them have great imprint upon our heart and our soul, so much so that we could never shake this truth from our mind or our being, that we, like Christ, would pursue fervent prayer because of these realities. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.